0: Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com WNYC and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Science
1: Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
2: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We've all had that moment. You've got that pint of ice cream in the freezer. Strawberry maybe? I'll go with Coffee. You've been looking forward to this treat all day. You open the carton, and it's covered in ice crystals. Freezer burn. Your ice cream is going to taste bad and feel chalky and strange in your mouth. Those little chunks of strawberry? Weirdly crunchy. Bleh. as they say. That dreaded freezer burn happens when the water in your food forms ice crystals that destroy the cellular structure of the food itself. It's a common risk when we preserve food by exposing it to very cold air, right? And the result is bad taste, of course, but also some loss of the food's nutritional value. That's the bad news. The good news is USDA food scientists working with a team at the University of California, Berkeley, have something that could solve that problem, a whole new method of chilling food to preserve it. This new method, called isochoric freezing, Actually plays with pressure, so the food becomes cold without its moisture turning into ice. No ice, no freezer burn, and potentially a much lower energy footprint for the commercial food industry. We're talking billions fewer kilowatt hours. Here first to explain more about why this is so exciting, Dr. Christina Bilbao, a food technologist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in Albany, California. Welcome Christina.
0: Hi, hi, Ayran. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to the show. <laughs>
1: Always a pleasure. Maybe you were a little frozen there because you know we're going to talk about freezing, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh. yeah. I
1: had no idea that we needed a new way to freeze food. Why is conventional food freezing flawed?
0: So conventional freezing, it has the advantage that the temperature is very low it can uh, slow down the deterioration processes such as uh, respiration, oxidation, and microbial growth. However, uh, ice formation during freezing can cause uh, cellular damages that results in the product with poor quality. In terms of uh, maybe texture, color, they might lose uh, some nutrients. That's the reason we need to find out a new technology that can be used to preserve food at freezing temperatures, but without any ice formation inside the food product. Isochoric freezing, what it does, it uh, takes advantage of uh, preserving the food at freezing temperatures and therefore uh, slowing down the deterioration reactions but without any ice formation inside the food product.
1: So what happens to foods you froze with the new method? What were they like after being frozen?
0: We were uh, pleasantly surprised at how similar these food products are to the fresh products. In terms of uh, the appearance, they don't lose volume, uh, they don't lose mass, the texture, the color, even the nutrient content. So it's very, very similar to the fresh products.
1: Huh, so it even tastes the same way.
0: We have only tested uh, tomatoes and raw potatoes, and they, they tasted the same, yes.
1: Not every fruit and vegetable is a good fit, right? What kinds of food would this method be best for?
0: I think uh, this technology can be used to extend the safe life of uh, fresh produce. Good candidates would be uh, those uh, fruit and vegetables that are difficult to freeze using conventional uh, freezing processes like tomatoes. We have also found out that minimally processed uh, foods such as cut potatoes can be also a good candidate. Cut potatoes, when they are packed in vacuum or in a modified atmosphere, the safe life is only five to seven days in the refrigerator. So this technology can be used to extend the safe life of this uh, cut product.
1: Wow. Does food frozen this way retain its nutritional value also?
0: Yes, we can do it in a way that it retains the nutritional value.
1: So is this exciting to you? I mean, to have a new way to freeze food. This seems like something that doesn't come along very often.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, we have also found out that uh, this technology can improve the food safety and reduce the energy cost of refrigeration. Now we are going to investigate the potential use of isochoric freezing for cold pasteurization and preservation of fluid foods such as uh, milk uh, fruit juices and vegetable juices. There is an increased consumer demand for more fresh, authentic uh, fruity foods. The industry is offering pasteurized fruit foods, fruit fluids. The safe life of these products is very short. So we are now trying to to investigate the potential of using isochoric freezing to pasteurize and preserve these fluid foods in just one step.
1: Wow, that sounds exciting. I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today.
0: You're welcome. Thank you to you.
1: Dr. Christina Bilbao is a food technologist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in Albany, California. I want to turn out to another researcher on the team, Dr. Matthew Powell-Palm, a mechanical engineer and postdoctoral scholar at UC Berkeley. He is based in Bozeman, Montana. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Ira. Good to be here. Nice to have you. First of all, let's geek out a bit about this freezing myth, because I am a geek, and I got to know all the details. (laughs) I mentioned it involves keeping foods at a higher pressure than just sticking it in a freezer. So explain what we're doing exactly, what the effects are of that.
3: Yeah. So isochoric, the word means constant volume, right? So what we're doing is we're, we're taking foods, and we're trapping them in a constant volume box, a constant volume container. And what this does, thermodynamically speaking, is it cuts them off from the atmosphere. And so what we find is that if we take uh, food products that are you know, mostly water, and we, we cut them off from the atmosphere, and we start to freeze them, cool them down in a confined volume, then ice, because it wants to expand relative to liquid water, ice will try and expand, but the container will push back against it, and this... This sort of tug of war will create an internal pressure in the system. And essentially the the confinement of the system prevents the ice from freezing the food. So just a little bit of ice grows at the sort of periphery of the container. And it drives this hydrostatic pressure that stabilizes the whole system at sub-zero temperatures without allowing the foods to freeze solid. That was maybe a little more info than you were looking for, Ira.
1: <laughs> so we need a little bit of water inside the little freezing chamber in order for this to work then.
3: Indeed, indeed. So so we're swapping, if you think of conventional food freezing as happening in air, this mode of food freezing happens in, in water and takes advantage of the quote unquote incompressibility of of liquids
1: you know this seems like such a simple principle in some ways it's sort of the opposite of the pressure cooker instead of heating it up you're keeping it cold right exactly quite interesting you know one of the things that christina just mentioned was its potential for energy savings why is this a more efficient process than just sticking your strawberries in a cold box
3: a tomato is over 90 percent water right so a lot of the foods that we consume are mostly water And the freezing of water is incredibly energy intensive, right? So just just the process of converting the liquid state of water into its crystalline icy state requires a huge input of energy. So at the core of this isochoric um, energy savings premise is the fact that we simply aren't allowing the food products themselves to freeze to solidify we're keeping them at sub freezing temperatures but we're using this interesting constant volume high pressure relationship to keep the foods themselves from freezing and it it saves us from having to pay let's call it the energetic toll of converting the water inside the food into ice
1: yeah that phase shift really draws a lot of energy
3: Food preservation in isochoric systems requires much milder cold, right? So we can hold, let's say, tomatoes for length scales of months at only minus 2 or minus 3 Celsius instead of minus 20 Celsius, right? And so asking your freezer to operate at minus 2 requires of it much less energy than it operating at minus 20 or below.
1: And this doesn't have to be a system for food. We can keep all kinds of things at cold temperatures. And you've been doing work on finding applications for human tissue preservation and transplants. Tell us more about that.
3: Yeah, I think one of the the, transplant medicine is one of the absolutely most fascinating applications here. Uh, Because like, for instance, if if we look at heart transplant, right, which is is particularly relevant in the US where heart disease is one of the the major annual killers, we get thousands and thousands of of donor hearts uh, that are made available every year, but we end up transplanting only about 30% of them. And and the reason that so many go to waste is our simple inability to hold those hearts outside the body for sufficiently long periods of time to get them into someone uh, uh, who needs them, right? So you imagine how complicated a a heart transplant is. You only have four to six hours uh, after the death of the donor to get that heart into a recipient. So it's an unbelievable logistical hurdle. And so we're looking at using the same fundamental thermodynamic premise, isochoric freezing, uh, to enable uh, preserving hearts outside the body for, let's say, 24 hours or two days instead of four to six hours. So really, anywhere that the shelf life of biological matter is a problem, we can apply this technology.
1: Wow. Wow. What are some of the challenges you have to overcome? What about the container? We're talking about you have a very small experimental container, right? Don't you have to scale that up?
3: I think of, of of problems as a whole, technological problems, in two categories: science problems and engineering problems. So we've been working for the last several years to settle the science of isochoric freezing, right? The the the, the food science and the thermodynamics, you name it. And so the next sort of phase is tackling the engineering, right? And and the nice thing about it is that the building of Large pressure-bearing containers is not new. It's something that the the industry has already figured out for uh, oil and gas, for the storage of of various compressed liquids and gases. You name it. So now what we're looking at is is taking knowledge that already exists out there in the 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 engineering and mechanics world, and using it to scale our yes our two liter prototype systems up to 50 liters, 100 liters, 500 liters. Um, so that's something that will happen likely outside of the university but is is top of mind here for the next couple of years.
1: Well, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. I think I've learned a whole lot about food.
3: Well, thank you, Ira.
1: Dr. Matthew Powell Palm, postdoctoral scholar and mechanical engineer with the University of California at Berkeley. After the break, feasting with help from fungus, marinating with mold. Yes, we revisit a classic conversation about cooking with Koji. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. One of the silver linings of this long pandemic, if there is one, is that many people discovered or rediscovered their love of cooking. Last year, at the height of the quarantine, these listeners called us to share their proud creations.
3: Since the onset of the pandemic, I've brewed three big batches of kombucha using a variety of teas, chai, asam, and white. I've grown oyster mushrooms from a mail-ordered bag of mycelial spawn and fermented two jars of sauerkraut.
4: I've done a lot of bread baking and a lot of fermenting. I recently made a sauerkraut with red cabbage, beets, and carrots, and it was really, really good. And I have a whole bunch of ginger that I accidentally
1: bought too much of. So now I'm gonna make a fermented ginger paste and see how that works.
4: So I made dandelion jam, pesto from the chickweed and dead nettle in my yard. I've been brewing kombucha. I'm trying to make kvass. I've been using a mesophilic yogurt starter to make my own yogurt. It's really been great fun and um, a good way to pass time.
1: Those were the voices of Morgan from Portland, Camille and Tanya from Arkansas. Thank you for your submissions to the Science Friday Fox Pop app. Maybe you've already done the sourdough or the pickles or the yogurt, right? My next guests have the perfect next step for you. It's called koji. It's a white fuzzy mold and it smells like fruit. And we can thank it for a splendid array of foods from East Asian cultures, including soy sauce, miso, and sake. And my next guests want you to join in to make culinary delights with the help of this magical mold, even beyond the traditional uses. Think koji charcuterie or miso peanut butter. Here to talk more about the transformation power of aspergillus or Isae are my guests, the co-authors of the book, Koji Alchemy. Rich Shee is a mechanical engineer by day and the exhibit engineer for NYC's Museum of Food and Drink. And Jeremy Umansky is a co-chef and co-owner of Larder Delicatessen and Bakery in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to Science Friday.
5: Thanks for having us on. Thank you.
1: I know I've already given the overview that Koji is a mold. And had it's been used for thousands of years, but please, you got to sell me on the idea of using a mold to make food. Uh, Jeremy, why is this so delicious?
2: Well, one thing to keep in mind is you're already eating this mold in one way, shape or form. Uh, I'm willing to bet that virtually every listener today has some soy sauce in their house, whether it's a bottle of it or a little packet from Chinese takeout. Um, And that soy sauce cannot be made without this mold. So we already have it in our lives. We already eat so many different fermented foods that rely on molds, things like cheeses and charcuterie. Um, You know, we can lump yeast into that. You know, they're both types of fungi. So bread, um, it's already exists there. So using it, to make foods more delicious is pretty simple and straightforward.
1: Mm-hmm. And, it, and is it the rice that we're really cooking with it, right? Exactly. You can't
2: just take the spores of the mold and make something delicious. You have to get it to grow first. So you grow it on rice or barley or actually any starchy substrate. So it could be wheat berries. It could be rye. Uh, it could be
1: hominy. Give me an idea what it looks like. You know, it, it, I've seen photos. It looks very pretty growing there on the rice. Right. It's, I, I think, pretty
2: is a lackluster word, Ira. It is. It is sultry and stunning. I, I mean, it's sultry and stunning. It, <laughs> it really is. You look at it and you get lost in it. Um, it is just so white and fuzzy and fluffy. It's inviting, almost like. Um, you know, you look at a, a picture of a sky with beautiful, like, cumulus clouds in it, and you're like, that just makes you relax and feel at home, and it just, oh, I could I could hug one of those clouds, or I could lay down on it and take a nap. Koji kind of has that same effect on you when you look at it and it's growing fresh, and then you throw its aroma on top of that, which, you know, its, it's aroma is, you know, green apple and champagne and honeysuckle tropical fruit like mango and pineapple with a little bit of mushroominess there. Some people even say they pick up roasted chestnut. I mean, it's just absolutely bewitching and intoxicating from how it looks to how it smells to how it tastes. It's just absolutely incredible.
1: You know, you sound like you're describing a fine wine. Uh rich does, does it does it do that for you too, make you feel that way?
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm uh I am not as externally excited about koji as jeremy is but internally it just blows my mind koji is so simple all you need is like a warm space with a little bit of humidity that can be achieved in an array of ways very similar to setting up a um, you know setting up for bread proofing and you just basically boil some water or you set up a steamer and you mix these ingredients in dust on some spores and you you mix every 12 hours and who can't do that over the course of two days i mean you can go to work come back home and do your mix and and at the end of the day it's done and ready to go and then all you have to do is add some some water to it and some grain like cooked grains and you can make this amazing sweet porridge that you can also use as a marinade that's a perfect like the perfect marinade for any piece of meat or protein you put it on Because we often go through the exercises of making a marinade such that you enhance the flavor of the core component itself. Koji does that by default by taking the enzymes to break down the constituent parts of this food and creates, you know, basically what I like to refer to as, you know, an automatic barbecue sauce that has nothing that is made with everything that's part of the food that you create it with.
1: And Jeremy, does it have a taste of its own? If if I put it on rice, for example, and I'm growing it on rice, I know what rice tastes like. Well, well, then the other flavor there be that of the mold.
2: Yeah, so it's actually going to transform the rice itself. Uh, so oftentimes we talk about uh, one of the the molds, Aspergillus uh, that produces citric acid as it grows not as a byproduct, but actually produces it as it grows. And if you were to eat some rice that had this mold growing on it, it would taste like Sour Patch Kids.
1: (laughs) And we're talking just plain old rice here. (laughs) And and Richard, are are there different strains of koji that produce different flavors?
5: There are specific kojis that create different flavors based on their enzyme engines. Sojay has this, um, an enzymatic engine that is more on the protease side, to break down proteins into amino acids, as these enzymes become active in terms of breaking down the the base food substances, you get all sorts of, you know, interesting and funky flavors. Um, I recall, you know, every time that I grow it on rye or even teff, I get these, you know, mushroomy aromas and as well as flavors.
1: We're all familiar with soy sauce, for example which is one of the many things koji is used to make, as you said before. How does that process work? I mean, how do you start from a mold and get to a tasty soy sauce, Rich?
5: Yeah, so to to make soy sauce, you basically cook some soybeans, whether you soak them and steam them or you boil them such that in the state where they're cooked all the way through. So that's one part of it. The other part is you have toasted cracked wheat. So what you do is you basically have a one-to-one ratio of these two ingredients. You mix the ingredients together. You allow it to cool to a temperature that's you know, pretty much to, to your body temp. And that's how a lot of Japanese makers uh, gauge when you, you can actually inoculate it with the spores. Then you just you basically sprinkle it lightly with spores. Once you grow the koji, you put it in a, a, basically a saltwater brine And you allow it to ferment. Uh, And then you you have a specific mixing schedule based on uh, the temperature conditions and the stages of of making it.
2: So that's how it happens. Yeah. And you know, the the only difference between miso or an amino paste, as we call them, because they're pastes and they're rich in amino acids, and an amino sauce like soy sauce is water content. So whether you decide you want to make a miso or gojujang or any of these pastes, or you want to make... An amino sauce; it's just varying degrees of, of of water that they contain. So you can go in either direction just as easily.
1: And sake, can you you get alcohol?
2: Oh my God, can you? Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting because of the breath, the types of sh- sugars like the oglio sugars and and uh, the glucose that's formed in an uh, amazaki which is a mixture of a cooked starch the Koji inoculated starch and water, uh, you can get a lot of alcohol. I mean, you can get upwards towards a 12% ABV without doing anything extraordinary, literally just putting some yeast in and letting it sit and be happy. So you can get some fantastic alcohols and uh, some of the Kojis that produce these different flavors and aromas and some that produce citric acid can just add infinite layers of complexity
1: to any of the alcohols you make. Mm, I understand. You can make popcorn. Rich,
5: how did you come up with that? So I was kind of just looking around in my pantry to figure out, hey, what could I really play around with to create this accessible starch that could you know, have these gaps such that the mold would grow in between because you need a level of air in between the grains? And I just saw this popcorn and I said, well, when you pop popcorn, you're basically... You know, you create, it's basically a pressure cooker for each each kernel. And when it blows up, uh, it uses the internal steam to blow it up to create a puffed condition such that the starch is very accessible. As we all know, when we eat it, it dissolves in our mouths. So I just decided that, hey, I don't have to cook it. I can make it explode and create this accessible starch. And all I needed to do was not to make it too wet, is just to mist it with a little bit of water and there I had my accessible starch. I had plenty of air for the mold to grow. And I just, you know, to, to assure that it would grow well, I just dusted it with a little bit of flour and the spores and it took off like gangbusters. And for somebody who doesn't necessarily want sit, to sit and wait for, you know, your grains to soak or your beans to soak and you just want to try something, it's, it's a pretty cool starting point.
1: Can you use Koji as, uh, you know, as a quarantine experiment for all of us now? You most definitely can. Whatever
2: level you want to plug in with, you can. So for example, uh, traditionally throughout Japan, they use a product called Shio Koji, which is this porridge of the molded rice or barley with salt added to it. And that is used as a general all-purpose seasoning. So you can easily find that online and you can order a little package of it. It'll show up at your doorstep. You can rub it on some chicken or some steak or saute some vegetables with it and see instantly the short-term drasticness that that Koji brings to amazing flavor as you're working with it. So while it is straightforward, should you not want to grow the mold, there's several great companies out there. Um, most of them are really small family-owned businesses uh, like Cold Mountain Koji, and you can buy pre-inoculated rice, or barley from them. So if you wanted to go ahead and make an amino paste like a miso or gochujang, you could simply buy the inoculated grains, mix them with a little water to hydrate them, open up a can of beans, mix those together with the inoculated grain and a little bit of salt. We use 3% of its weight as a very minimum on the base, but you can go 5%, 7%, 10% and let it sit. And you will have your own amino paste, something like a miso. Um, Or you could simply order spores and just go all in and start growing the mold on everything like we do. There (laughs) really are no barriers to entry for working with Koji.
1: I'm Ira Plato, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Does, uh, Richard, does playing with molds give you a new dimension about creativity with food? You know, we're talking about jams and pickles and pestos and vinegars. Now you have something new to play with.
5: I, I think it's just the the fact that uh, koji allows you to do so many multifaceted things. A lot of us focus on very specific fermented products like kraut or kimchi, or you know yogurt, or a very specific beer from a very specific region with all these you know incredible malts and hops and specific water and a specific alcohol content. What we have to think about is they got to that point because somebody just left something out for a period of time such that it can be consumed at a specific time for survival. And people got tied into this idea of, hey, I really love that. I wanna keep making it the same exact way because not only is it safe to consume, but it's delicious. But our idea is to think about this in a much larger scheme in terms of that specific discovery can be with any food that you apply it to. I mean, granted, things can go wrong, but it's the, the adventure of all these possibilities that we have access to, whether it be the ingredients, um, technology, ideas, you know, or even, you know, past products that we know and love that we can kind of change up and play around with. And that's the nature of what we, we love to do.
1: How does it go with pastrami? Oh, man.
2: If I describe it, I'll be bragging. So I'll let Rich, who's eaten my pastrami, describe it.
5: Um, so I think one of the things to understand about it is that, you know, through these, you know, through usage of, you know, creating these uh, amino acids through the, you know, through the enzymes and these sugars, you get this this amazing flavor like that, that bounds, oh you know, that's above and beyond what you could do in a traditional method. With a traditional method, you know, you have the slow process of heating such that you can create the food that is is quite unctuous by breaking down the connective tissue. And it makes it moist and it makes it very pleasing. Uh, And then you also have a brine to create this, you know, this salinity. But with a koji, you can actually create like this level of tenderness and depth of flavor without doing any sort of manipulation. And it's just bringing it up a level of what it already is.
1: I'm coming over.
5: We'll save a seat on the patio for
1: you. Thank you both. This was quite fascinating. I hope we have inspired a lot of people to try some new cooking ideas. Rich She is a mechanical engineer by day and the exhibit engineer for NYC's Museum of Food and Drink. And Jeremy Umansky is a chef and owner of Larder Delicatessen and Bakery in Cleveland, Ohio. And they're co-authors of the book Koji Alchemy, Rediscovering the Magic of Mold-Based Fermentation. Thank you guys for enlightening us and uh, giving us something more to do as we stay home.
2: You're welcome, Ira. Thank you so much. This has been a dream come true.
1: Yeah, this is
5: a pleasure.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. That conversation was from 2020. We've got more mold on the menu. Coming up, how mold and bacteria make those funky flavors you love on your cheese.
4: Penicillium camemberti, which, as you can probably tell, was named after camembert cheese. Gives the cheese uh, some of these sort of mushroomy flavors.
1: Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flatow. If you love cheese like I do, you know that pairing cheese with the perfect wine or beer can really enhance the flavors of your fromage. You know that a merlot may bring out the mushroominess of a nice gouda, Or an amber ale with a sharp cheddar. I'm getting very hungry right now. But if you're a cheese geek and you really want to understand what makes those cheese tastes and textures, you need to match your cheese with its microbes. Yes, microbes. Back in 2016, we talked to a scientist who says that 10 billion, you heard me right, 10 billion microbial cells live on just the rind alone. Talk about flavor enhancers. She's even sequenced the colonies on the rind of 160 different cheeses. And our callers had a lot of cheesy questions for her. Rachel Dutton is Associate Professor at UC San Diego and Director of Microbial Sciences at Arcadia Science. Welcome to Science Friday.
4: Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. You
1: know, I'm not sure a lot of people realize that there are bacteria involved in all parts of cheese and cheesemaking, but you you specifically focus on the rind. Why the rind?
4: Yeah, well bacteria are actually important for pretty much every delicious food that we eat. So whether we're thinking about cheese or beer or wine um, they, these microbes actually have an important role. And we're really interested in cheese because it is an example of a simple ecosystem that we can really pull apart and put back together in the lab and understand how microbes actually build communities and fight with each other, help each other communicate. And the rind of cheese has this amazing biofilm-like uh, structure. So it's actually a completely separate community of microbes that grows on the surface of cheese during the aging process.
1: And, and, and in the cheese making you purposely put the microbes to make the rind.
4: So in some cheeses, you do. So if you think about a brie or a camembert, um, those cheeses, you actually add specific types of fungi and sometimes bacteria um, to make the rind of the cheese. So if you look at those cheeses, you see this fluffy white surface on the cheese. And so that's actually all microbes. Um, So the fluffiness is the Penicillium camemberti, which, as you can probably tell, was named after camembert cheese. Um, and Penicillium gives the cheese uh, some of these sort of mushroomy flavors, and then you also have two other really interesting microbes. One is a fungus called Geotrichum, and one is a bacterium called Hafnia. And together, they produce a lot of the sort of cauliflowery kind of uh, smells and tastes that you get in these really ripe Camemberts.
1: Hmm. Uh, um, that that penicillin is is it an antibiotic too? When we eat it
4: it's not but it is um it's sort of a cousin of the fungus that produces yeah. the antibiotic penicillin yeah
1: now, now there there are bacteria inside the cheese versus the stuff that's on the rind does that mean that the inside of the cheese is going to have a different flavor given by those microbes than the ones that are closer to the rind
4: yeah exactly so there's the lactic acid bacteria inside the cheese so those were are the species that were used to acidify the milk and produce the fresh curds um, and so the sort of closer you get to the rind, the more intense a flavor is often in the cheese. So if you, again, think about something like a brie, you often have the cheese starting to get um, really gooey just underneath the rind, so it's ripening. Um, and that's because the activity of the microbes growing on the surface, they're actually producing a lot of the, the molecules that cause the cheese to ripen. So it's sort of ripening from the outside in.
1: And yeah, you know, there are people who are afraid to eat the rind. Are they missing the whole part of the cheese if you don't eat the rind?
4: Absolutely, yeah. So those microbes are incredibly tasty. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, I encourage people to at least give it a nibble and see and see what they think.
1: <laughs> how, how many kinds of rinds are there? Uh,
4: there are well. If you think of different kinds of cheeses there's hundreds if not thousands of different cheeses and we can kind of classify rinds into maybe three major groups so we have the the first group would be these bloomy rind cheeses what we call them so the brie and camembert style ones and then we have the rinds, which during the aging process, the cheese makers will actually wash the surface of the cheese with a salt water solution, um, and those create this really stinky, um, funky flavors in the cheese. And so those are called the washed rinds. Mm-hmm. And then the third variety of rind that we think about is uh, the natural rind. So this is where you make the cheese, so something like a, a cheddar, and you put it into a cave and you just let it be. Um, let the microbes colonize, don't really mess with it. Um, and you have a completely different type of microbial community that forms on these three different types of rinds. Hmm.
1: Let's go to the phones, because lots of people love cheese and they are interested. Let's First, let's go to uh, <laughs> Moscow, Idaho. And Hannah, hi, welcome to Science Friday.
4: Hey, Ira, thanks. Go ahead, sure. Okay, so I had a question. My mom, growing up, whenever we got mold or any fuzzies on the cheese in our home or in our fridge, she would always cut that part off and then we could use it. She would always say, oh, it's just mold. It's not going to hurt you. And so she would cut it off. I didn't know where that came from. Does that come from the cheese itself or would that happen in the packaging facility or where would that come from?
1: Yeah, Good question.
4: Yeah. So there's mold all around us. um, And there's sort of wild species of mold that are often closely related to the ones we find in cheeses that are just in your home, um, say floating around your kitchen. And so once you slice into the cheese, you create this open environment that any microbe floating around might want to grow on. Um, So often when you cut into the cheese and you put it in your refrigerator some of those microbes might start growing on there and they actually like cool temperatures like your refrigerator so it's sort of like a cheese cave Um, and Mm. so that's probably where they're coming from.
1: Is it safe to eat that mold that's growing on there?
4: I probably wouldn't recommend (laughs) eating it But, but yeah if you sort of cut it away that's uh, seems to be fine.
1: So, uh, so Rachel, what makes a, uh, a, a hard cheese versus a soft cheese? What what what's going on there that turns it soft or keeps it hard?
4: Yeah, so a lot of that has to do with what the cheese is doing to the the milk and the curds when they first make the cheese. So if you um, heat the curds to a higher temperature, um, that will help get rid of moisture. If you press the curds once you've made the first wheel, um, that will also get rid of moisture. So the more moisture you um, remove at the beginning of the cheese making process, the firmer the cheese will be, and the longer you can age that cheese. So things like the cloth-bound cheddars, um, you can age them for a year or more and that's because they have a low moisture which actually um, slows down the growth of microbes. So you can kind of um, control how quickly the microbes grow and how quickly your cheese ripens by how much moisture is in the Mm -hmm. cheese.
1: And all that's the the veins running through gorgonzola whatever, were they put in there or did the cheese make them?
4: (laughs) Yeah so those are really fascinating. So those are due to a uh, microbe um, it's a fungus again it's a penicillium species but this penicillium is called penicillium roqueforti so named after roquefort cheese in france and this particular species of penicillium is this is produces this blue pigment and it only grows in low oxygen environments. So when cheesemakers make this cheese, they actually take the spores of the fungus and mix it into the milk. So it's all over throughout the milk and throughout the cheese. And then after they've made the, the wheel of cheese, they actually take a metal spike and punch holes into the cheese to make these little cracks uh, throughout the wheel. Hmm. And oxygen can get into these cracks, and that little bit of oxygen is what stimulates the growth of Penicillium roqueforti. And it starts to grow. It produces these beautiful blue-green pigments as it's growing. And the other interesting thing it does is not just producing this color, it's actually doing a lot to the flavor of these cheeses. So anytime you eat a blue cheese, you recognize that you've eaten a blue cheese, right? It's it's a very sort of distinctive flavor. Um, And that's because this mold, Penicillium Roqueforti, is breaking down the fat in milk and it's releasing these free fatty acids. Um, So some of these free fatty acids have the spicy peppery flavor that Mm -hmm. you associate with blue cheese. So the more blue mold you have in the cheese, the spicier. Uh, the cheese will be and then it actually can break those down further and produce these volatile molecules so very small molecules that we can smell and so there's one of these molecules that it produces called 2-heptanone and that's one of the key aromas of blue cheese so when you're smelling blue cheese you're actually smelling the byproducts of this fungus as it's growing wow Wow,
1: well, complex stuff yes. <laughs> going on. <laughs> and I, I understand that that you have even found marine marine bacteria on some cheeses. How did yeah, they get there?
4: Yeah, we don't know. So um, on these washed rind cheeses that I mentioned, so where the cheesemakers makers will um, wash the surface with a, a salty um, solution of water, we actually find many organisms, many bacteria that we normally would find in the ocean, which is sort of perplexing. Um, and so we still don't know exactly where they're coming from, but we think it's probably from the sea salt that's being used in cheese making. Or, It could be due to the fact that cheese itself is a very salty environment, and these microbes are used to growing in salty environments, so they just Mm. happen to find um, an environment that they really love.
1: Do you ever get tired of talking about cheese?
4: (laughs) No, I feel like I have the best job in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I get to talk about cheese. I get to study cheese in my lab. Um, It's wonderful. Uh, Let's
1: go to uh, Portland, Oregon with Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi there. Um, My question is about storage of cheese. I have put, I've always been taught to wrap it in plastic to keep the oxygen out. And then I just was in a fancy kitchen store that had something called a cheese vault, where it said air was important to be around the cheese when you're storing it.
4: Yeah, so because cheese is alive... Um, and the microbes in it. If you want to, to keep those microbes alive and happy, you want to allow them to have a little bit of oxygen. Um, so if you wrap it in plastic wrap, this sort of you're suffocating <laughs> the microbes on the cheese.
1: That's that's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, and th- thanks for the call. That 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 brings up the question. Can can every cheese batch or what, however you call it, be the same? I mean, if you're if there are microbes and bacteria and different kinds of stuff floating in the air, isn't every every what, what's the, the wheel or whatever? What do you call a batch of cheese, Rachel?
4: A batch of cheese. Yeah. A batch of cheese. Yeah.
1: Are they gonna all be different, really?
4: Um, yeah. So you can have. You know differences depending on the season, where the milk is coming from, um, but it's sort of uh, amazing to me how reproducible cheese can be, and so that's part of why we're interested in studying these microbial communities that form mm. on the surface, because it's it's sort of um, you can think about it as uh, humans over thousands of years have figured out ways to very precisely manipulate how microbial communities form, and we sort of know. Exactly the conditions to um, create on the cheese, and those conditions will sort of allow the growth of a certain type of cheese rind versus another. so you can have sort of subtle variations, um, mm. but kind of in a if you zoom out a little bit, it's kind of amazing how reproducible they are.
1: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking about the microbiology of cheese with Rachel Dutton, an associate professor at UC San Diego. Rachel, I have to ask, and I know it's a tough question, but what's your favorite cheese?
4: <laughs> yeah, I get asked that a lot. Um, I it One of the things I love the most about cheese is how much diversity there is. So you can go to a cheese shop and there's hundreds, hundreds of varieties, and every time you can experience a new set of flavors. One of my favorite cheeses sort of um, is... A cheese that we actually study a lot in my lab. <laughs> so um, we collect samples from all over the world. And a cheesemaker that we work with a lot is Jasper Hill Farm in Vermont. And they make a blue cheese um, called Bailey Hazen Blue, which I love. And it's sort of our lab rat where we're very interested wow. in the microbes there. Um, and it's just a delicious cheese besides being very interesting uh from a scientific perspective
1: yeah i i'd I'd go get some of that to research too (laughs) all right here's my last question is what is your holy grail for cheese (laughs) what do you need to know
4: yeah well we're really trying to understand how a microbial community is organized so what i would love to be able to to do is figure out how all of these microbes are communicating with each other um are they fighting? Are they helping? Um, so, what what are all the molecules that are being shared amongst the community, and, and how are the species interacting? Yeah,
1: with all these with all these microbes, do we know how it might interact with our own microbiome? All these cheese you're eating.
4: <laughs> yeah. So we we actually had um, a study um, a couple years ago where we uh, fed human subjects cheese and followed the microbes and actually many of the microbes can survive uh, the gastrointestinal tract so we're we're becoming more and more interested in the interaction of microbes from fermented foods with the human gut microbiome
1: wow. Rachel you're you're welcome back anytime to talk about cheese
4: <laughs> Thanks so much for having me
1: Rachel Dutton associate professor at UC San Diego and Director of Microbial Sciences at Arcadia Science. And if you haven't had enough cheese, you can go over to our website, sciencefriday.com cheese, and find a whole archive, a cheese sampler, if you will. Before we head out this hour, here's a sci fi soundscape that we think will pair very nicely with our conversation. It's from Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett of the World According to Sound podcast. This is wine draining through a funnel.
3: Krzysztof is making himself some homemade plum wine. When the wine passes through the funnel and into the bottle, air escapes, creating this
1: little bubbly crescendo. The more liquid that empties from the funnel, the higher the pitch. That's what happens with a Helmholtz resonator, any vessel with a small opening. These sounds are part of a communal listening series The World According to Sound is hosting this winter. For more information about their 80-minute binaural events, visit theworldaccordingtosound.org. And that's about all the time we have this hour, and we're very thankful for all the people who make the show possible. Here's Ariel Zich.
4: Thanks, Ira. Nadia Ortelt is our chief content officer. John Dudkowski is our director of news and radio projects. Zochiel Garcia is our K-12 education program manager. Luke Groskin is our video producer. And I'm Education Director Ariel Zitch. Thanks for listening.
1: Thank you, Ariel. BJ Lederman composed our theme music. And of course, if you missed any part of this program or you would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts, or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Have a great, safe holiday weekend. I'm Ira Flato.